the last uh, six years or so at Autonomy has been a, a great experience working in the ear because there's been quite a renaissance of the biology of hearing disorders. And so being part of that and being part of, amongst others, thinking about ways we can use that information to develop new drugs to treat hearing loss and tinnitus has been uh, a really good experience. Welcome to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. I'm here with Dave Weber and Alan Foster from Autonomy. Autonomy is a biomedical company that focuses on hearing and balance disorders. Dave and Alan both have PhDs, and Dave is the president and CEO of the company, and Alan is the chief scientific officer. So it's really great to have both of them here to uh, talk about different sides of the company and the, the drugs that they're working on. Uh, now, before I ask you guys to introduce yourselves, uh, I just want to inform our listeners that Dave and Alan are recording with me at 7 a.m. local time. Uh, so I think that shows a lot of dedication and we really appreciate you guys taking time out of your, no doubt, very busy schedule. And a big welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Weber, I've been told uh, I can refer to you uh, by your first name. So, Dave, would you mind starting with introducing yourself? And then I'll ask Alan to do the same. Thank you, Hazel. And it's wonderful to be here. So, uh, I am president and CEO of Autonomy and have been with Autonomy since about 2010. My history and background is I have a PhD in biology and worked in the area of infectious disease and antimicrobial resistance, looking at the genetics of, of antibiotic resistance. How I arrived at Autonomy is through the route of using my scientific background in the pursuit of development of pharmaceuticals to treat patients. And I've come through a number of areas. Most recently before Autonomy was working in the field of ophthalmology, uh, working on retinal disease and the treatment of retinal disease. And I was actually hired to autonomy because of that background. Um, if one thinks about it, uh, the retina was an area of massive unmet need with macular degeneration, macular edema, uh, significant uh, vision loss for these patients and potential blindness. And up until the, uh, the, the 2000s, um, there was no pharmaceutical treatment. So physicians were trying to treat patients by surgical means, which was not... Uh, very successful. And so myself and, and uh, other companies uh, were working in the area of drug development. We learned that we needed to have drug delivery as a core part of that ability to deliver drugs to the back of the eye um, and was successful in, in developing a drug that is now on the market to treat patients with macular edema and other conditions. That led to my uh, coming on board to autonomy because as we will talk about the story of autonomy, it really was the recognition that just like the eye, there are massive unmet needs and many patients who need treatments for inner ear disorders. Like the eye, the ear is a sensory organ that's highly protected biologically. Um, and so you need drug delivery to get drugs in, into the ear uh, and keep them there. And so my background and exposure to ophthalmology really made uh, sense both to myself and to the company to, to come on board and help in its mission to develop drugs in this area. Great, thanks. And, and Dr. Foster, Alan, can I ask you to um, also introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, thank you. And I'm also very, very glad to be part of this, uh, this podcast today. So my name's Alan Foster. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer of Autonomy. 
Uh, been with the company since 2014. And uh, my background is actually in neuroscience and neuropharmacology. Um, and I've spent, uh, you know, the majority of my, my career in either large pharmaceutical companies or, or biotechnology companies like Autonomy, uh, working in, in neuroscience. Um, and that's actually a great um, foundation for working in the ear because a lot of the things that we deal with and we'll, we'll speak about today are related to the neuroscience of what happens in, in the cochlea. Like Dave, I also have experience of working in the retina. I worked for a company called Allegan, uh, which is a big retinal company for uh, a number of years. Uh, and that was a good way to get experience of another sensory organ and drug delivery to a sensory organ. As Dave indicated, that's been a, a big area of uh, drug development for local administration. And that's exactly what we're trying to do in the ear with hearing loss and tinnitus. So the last uh, six years or so at Autonomy has been a, a great experience working in the ear because there's been quite a renaissance of the biology of hearing disorders. And so being part of that and being part of, amongst others, thinking about ways we can use that information to develop new drugs to treat hearing loss and tinnitus has been uh, a really good experience. That's actually a perfect segue to what was going to be my first question uh, and I'm not sure which one of you wants to pick this up, but why actually the focus on hearing disorders specifically? Well, our, our history, um, if we go back to the history of the company, was to develop drugs to treat inner ear disorders. And that covers both uh, balance disorders, tinnitus, and, and hearing loss. And so as you look at our pipeline, we really have a broad pipeline against each of those major areas. And of course, there's uh, multiple backgrounds in, in terms of hearing loss, congenital as well as acquired hearing loss. And so the company and our focus on the ear really, really decided to, to go after these areas. Why do you think there is not more commercial investment in hearing disorders generally? I, I always find it a little bit astounding considering how many people suffer from hearing disorders. And if you compare it with investments in I don't know, depression or diabetes, like there's a long list actually of, uh, of um, areas of health that seem to receive more, uh, more attention, especially when it comes to like real cutting edge uh, biomedical research and investment. Do you think there's just a lack of incentives? Is there a lack of data? Like what's the obstacle there? And, and do you see any new trends? Fortunately, I do see new trends and I think that's wonderful for all of us. Um, and I think the background here is really how drug development occurs. You're correct in terms of the number of patients. It seems obvious. What people struggle with is understanding, is there a ability to treat those disorders? And so you really have to have pioneers that stake out the ground and say, we're going to do this. I use the example of ophthalmology. That's really the example there is that I remember back in my early days, and Alan probably does as well, working in ophthalmology, where we had physicians telling us that we would not be able to inject drugs into the back of the eye to treat um, macular degeneration and macular edema without going into surgery, which meant that you could not really treat a large number of patients. And as we were able to show, and as we now see in the world today, is that that is extremely common practice, done every day by thousands, and has been highly successful. But it took a group of people and obviously investors to fund that work to be able to do the pioneer work necessary to show that it was possible to deliver drugs and achieve drug development in the eye. 
And that's exactly what our mission is in the ear. That is what we are doing here and why we set out as really a pioneer in the field to develop drug delivery to treat inner ear disorders and now have this pipeline that we are developing. Uh, we have to demonstrate to investors and to others that you can successfully treat these disorders. And I think one of the things, as Alan mentioned, we have really seen a renaissance in this area. And I think it's because of groups like us and others working in this field have really increased the attention. Um, we still have a long ways to go, and we still obviously need to get these drugs developed into the market. But I think that's the exciting part of this field and what we're doing is we're starting to see that change coming. And it will come. And uh, we are very excited to be a part of that. That's excellent news. Um, Alan, what's, what's your view on that? Do you concur that there seems to be more appetite and more interest in, in hearing disorders recently? Yes, absolutely. I, I think that, that that's very clear, you know, from a, again, from a basic science perspective, then we, we are gaining so much more information about um, the inner ear and how things work there uh, and ideas coming from that based on, on how therapies, new therapies might be able to be developed. Um, that I think that that's a really emerging field. And I think if you look at the growth of, of small companies that has happened recently in this area, then you can see that investment is being put in those areas now. So, you know, other companies uh, similar to autonomy. And I guess the other thing, because you mentioned, um, you know, some of the CNS disorders where there are, are large amounts of resources put behind those, then, you know, large pharmaceutical companies have, have been a large part of that in terms of, of developing those drugs. And I think for the ear, then it's, been, it's really an emerging area for those larger companies because they haven't traditionally worked in this area. So I think, you know, part of what we do is try and educate the large companies also in terms of what the opportunities are for, for ear disorders. Great. That's really encouraging to hear. So I'd like to take a rather deep dive with you guys into your pipeline. <laughs> uh, I know you have uh, a number of, of drugs in the pipeline, and I don't think we can cover all of them in an uh, equal amount of detail. There are two in particular that I know our audience will be very interested in, uh, which is OTO313, which is specifically being developed to treat tinnitus, and then OTO413. Uh, I assume, by the way, these are all sort of code names that, that will at some point change to a brand name, but OTO413 uh, uh, treats hearing loss or specifically cochlear synaptopathy and could potentially also be of benefit to, to tinnitus patients. So I definitely want to want to talk about those, but we can certainly also touch on the, uh, the other drugs in your pipeline. Maybe it would be uh, useful for our audience, and I don't know, that's probably a question for, for Alan, uh, if you can start with a brief overview of the various drugs and treatments in, in your pipeline and what are the different sort of disease areas that you're targeting there. So you mentioned uh, OTO313 and OTO413. So OTO313 is targeted at tinnitus, and it's through uh, a specific mechanism that I can, I can get into in a little while, uh, where we've, we've developed some very interesting and positive clinical data recently. Uh, 413 is focused, as you said, on cochlear synaptopathy. Uh, so that's a form of hearing loss, which involves speech and noise difficulties. So this is one of the common problems that people have when they start to lose their hearing is, is difficulty hearing in a noisy environment. Um, and again, we'll get in maybe into the mechanism of that in a little while. So those are our two clinical stage programs. And then 
beyond that, we have uh, a very exciting program in gene therapy for congenital hearing loss. That's called OTO825, uh, where we're, we're targeting the, the major, one of the major genetic causes of, of congenital hearing loss. We also have an interest in odor protection, so uh, that's a program called um, OTO510, which is focused on cisplatin-induced hearing loss. So this is the kind of hearing loss that occurs when patients undergo chemotherapy, uh, which can be very toxic to the ear, and we have a, a very novel molecule which is able to protect, uh, at least in our preclinical experiments, the ear from cisplatin-induced toxicity. And then we also have an interest in uh, hair cells and hair cell regeneration, and that's our OTO6XX program, uh, where we're interested in, in not only trying to find ways to regenerate hair cells, to restore hair cells where in, in severe hearing loss, but also look at repair of hair cells and how that can be beneficial in, in hearing loss. So we have a pretty uh, broad pipeline of products at clinical stage and, and, and on the way to becoming clinical stage across a variety of different disorders. Right, yeah, and 6XX, by the way, I, I've seen some chatter about that on our, our Tinnitus Talk forum, where people are very curious what it's about, because there's not that much known about it yet. So <laughs> we should probably touch on that, that as well. And then I understand there is also a drug that was being developed for Meniere's, which I assume is maybe the earliest one that you started with, or at least got furthest along in the pipeline to um, phase three, but I think has shown some disappointing results. I don't want to dwell on that too much, but but what can you say about what that drug was about and, and why do you think it failed to meet its um, phase three endpoints? So Otividex um, is a steroid product. Um, as we know with Meniere's and, and the background of the company was the company was founded by a, a patient and their physician. Um, the patient, Jay Lichter, just to give a little background here on the company and why this is in our DNA really uh, to treat these disorders of the ear. Um, Jay was diagnosed with Meniere's disease and uh, was seen by one of the world's experts, um, Dr. Jeffrey Harris, who proceeded to treat Jay with steroid off-label, and Jay was able to get a relief from that. Um, but the challenge was the delivery of the drug, and as they talked, uh, Jay, being a scientist by background, recognized the need for drug delivery and was familiar with the story in the eye and what had happened in the back of the eye. So the two of them were the founders of Autonomy. And in so doing, the focus of the company initially was on Meniere's, as well as a development of an antibiotic drug, which we've actually developed and have on the market, and it's being uh, promoted by a partner commercially in the U.S. That product, Otiprio, was approved for two different indications, and it really proves out our delivery technology, um, as well as the safety of that delivery. So we, of course, decided to focus on the development programs, including the programs Alan mentioned and Otividex. With Otividex, um, there's a lot of background in terms of the support of steroids. Clinicians had done a lot of work utilizing steroids and showing data that uh, both retrospective and prospective research that showed that the drug worked in helping people alleviate their vertigo symptoms. So it was a natural area of focus for us, and we've obviously spent a considerable time and effort uh, in that pursuit. Um, as you mentioned, uh, we've had some success, but also some failures. And unfortunately, the most recent trial failed uh, in phase three. The primary endpoint was not achieved. 
uh, although it did uh, demonstrate improvement on a per-protocol basis that was statistically significant. The, the challenge here, and I think this is very important for us to communicate to patients and physicians, is that this is really a failure of clinical trial uh, work, not of a drug. Uh, we fully believe from all the work we've done that steroids are beneficial to these patients. Um, and we obviously had hoped that we would be able to develop Batividex for them. Uh, that said, to develop a drug and get it to market requires a complex set of clinical trials in which you're doing clinical work uh, that is very complicated and takes considerable design work in working with regulatory agencies for that approval. And so it really is a failure of uh, being able to do the kind of trial we need to do in a condition that, frankly, is a very difficult condition. As these patients know, the vertigo waxes and wanes. It comes and goes, and it's not highly stable. Um, and it makes it quite difficult to do that kind of work um, in a clinical environment. And so uh, I think, you know, for us, it's very important that while we're obviously uh, disappointed in the results, uh, we are still convinced of the opportunity that steroids provide for these patients and, um, and, and definitely do not want these results in any way to reflect against that. So do you intend to proceed with OTVDEX uh, as a treatment for Meniere's vertigo events or, or do you, uh, is it sort of on pause or, or what's, the, what's the status? Yeah, we've done quite a bit of work here um, and really felt that we had done everything we could in this latest trial in terms of design elements and, and control elements. Um, with this result, uh, we've done a, a very complete analysis and clearly, in, in parallel to the clinical work, we've been developing these other programs that we're talking about with regards to tinnitus and uh, cochlear synaptopathy, for which we've now shown some very positive clinical results that um, are very promising, uh, where there, of course, is no current treatments available for those in terms of drug therapy, uh, particularly for tinnitus, as well as for the gene therapy program and OTO6XX. And so based on that, and as a small company, we are focusing on the continued development of these other programs. Um, we have limited resources, and we need to really ensure that we focus where we can make a difference for patients. And so our focus now really turns to the advancing the tinnitus program, which is entering phase two, as well as the uh, continued clinical development of OTO413 for cochlear synaptopathy-related hearing, hearing loss. And, and as well, the gene therapy program that we um, will hopefully have time to talk about. Great. So, yeah, let, let's talk about those. Let's start with OTO313, which is being developed specifically for tinnitus. Alan, can you describe the drug's basic uh, mechanism of action? Yes, certainly. Um, so, OTO313... Uh, the uh, the main ingredient of that, which uh, is, has, is the pharmaceutical uh, um, action, is gacyclidine. So this is a small molecule NMDA receptor antagonist. And NMDA receptors are a major subtype of the receptors for the neurotransmitter glutamate. And in the uh, cochlea, they're present on the nerve terminals that connect with the hair cells. So normally when the hair cells are stimulated by sound, then they release glutamate onto the nerve terminal that activates glutamate receptors, of which there are different kinds, including NMDA receptors, 
um, and then that transmits that information through the nerve, through the auditory nerve, to the brain where the sound is perceived. So that's the physiological situation of sound detection. Now, normally NMDA receptors don't play a role or a large role at, at all in that physiological stimulation. But in a situation where you get uh, a loud sound, uh, for example, uh, you know, being at a, a loud rock concert or maybe being exposed to uh, munitions, fire, for example, then that overstimulation of the, of the hair cells causes an over-release of glutamate onto the nerve terminals. And in that situation, the NMDA receptor becomes highly active. And that's when you can get damage to those nerve terminals through activation of the NMDA receptor. And so that's thought to be uh, one of the mechanisms that contributes to not only hearing loss, but also tinnitus generation. And so the way that uh, gacyclidine works as part of OTO313 is to block the NMDA receptors and prevent that overactivation from happening. Um, and so in that way, we think it prevents the, the tinnitus and reduces the tinnitus uh, that people experience. So um, I'm, I'm going to try to sort of break this down for, well, for myself as a lay person and for our, our lay audience as well. So we're talking about nerve excitation, sort of nerves getting overexcited in the, in the auditory nerve, and that is thought to be a cause uh, of tinnitus. And these nerves are activated by glutamate, and you're sort of trying to quiet them down. Is that quiet down that nerve, uh, that overexcitation of those nerves? Is that how it works? Exactly. Yes, exactly. Because that overexcitation uh, can become pathological, right? So it's beyond the normal physiological sound detection. And then it can damage those synapses. Uh, and, and, and you see this pretty clearly in, in, in animal models when, when you look at, at, at the, in detail as, as we do uh, at autonomy and at, at the cochlea and look at those synapses uh, very closely. Then you can see damage to those synapses, which then can cause hearing loss. And that's thought to uh, also be one of the generators for tinnitus. So by preventing that from happening, then you can, you can prevent or uh, tinnitus or restore it from, from the level that it's been experienced by the patient. Mm. Is this thought to happen in all cases of tinnitus or are we talking about specific cases of tinnitus? Yeah, as, as you know, there are many ways in which uh, tinnitus can occur. And so really this is a mechanism that relates to things that are happening in the co cochlea, so in the peripheral end of the auditory system. So if tinnitus is generated elsewhere, for example, from a, a head trauma event, then it's unlikely this would be a mechanism that would be helpful. But anything that is generated in the cochlea is, is thought to be mediated through this kind of mechanism where hair cells become overactive and the nerves become overactive. Mm. And how does that relate to the brain? Because we know the auditory pathway, it sort of starts in the cochlea and the auditory nerve, and then you have the lower brain regions and the upper brain regions. And those are all, uh, you know, thought to be involved in tinnitus in some way or other. Um, but do you believe that sort of just treating tinnitus at the very sort of early uh, beginning of the auditory pathway is, is sort of the best place to intervene? Yes. So, so you're, you're correct in that the, you know, the basic science tells us that, that um, tinnitus can begin in the peripheral end of the, of the auditory system. But then obviously the, 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 the signals or the lack of signals that are being sent to the auditory brain are a part of the whole mechanism of tinnitus. So one reason why in our clinical studies we began by, by investigating patients that had an early onset of tinnitus within six months 
was because of that, because from the, uh, the, the basic science data, it suggested that this is an event that is early on in the generation of tinnitus, and so it made sense for us to start in these patients that have an onset up to six months. Now, in, in, in truth, we don't know what the length of time is that's the window that, of opportunity that's available there. It's really hard to, to understand that from the basic science. But the fact that we saw effects out to six months, and in fact, in the cohort where, in that study, where that were three to six months, we saw you know what looked like a good clinical effect. It suggests that this is an ongoing um, mechanism that happens for a while, and it may vary between between different kinds of tinnitus patients. That that's something we need to learn. But but it made sense for us with this mechanism to start with the patients that have had more recent tinnitus because that's where we think the whole tinnitus generation occurs. Right. So the theory is that as tinnitus progresses and becomes chronic, uh, the signal becomes more centralized in, in the brain, and then it becomes harder to treat in the periphery of the auditory system. Is that the thinking behind it? Yeah, that, that, that's correct. So that, that's the thinking is that over time, it becomes centralized to the brain. Uh, but, it, but in truth, we don't know. You know. We don't know what that time period is. So you know, that's something we will be exploring in, in additional trials with, with OTO313. We'll go out to longer periods of time. And in fact, in the, the plans we have for the phase two studies, uh, we plan to now extend out to a, a year uh, of, of tinnitus onset. So we'll start to explore that and see and see how the information looks that we get back from those clinical studies. And, and that might inform us about the, the window of opportunity that's available. That will be very interesting to see those results, because I'm sure there are plenty of people out there with chronic tinnitus uh, who've had it for years even, who who would like to know if they might also benefit from this. So yeah, hopefully we'll see some positive results there. Can you talk a bit more about from the sort of preliminary data, who seems to respond well to this drug? I know the sample sizes probably haven't been uh, very large so far, so it might be difficult to distinguish between responders and non-responders, but can you can you speculate about that? Dave, do you want to go ahead with this one? Sure. So I think in terms of it is a small patient population in the present study. We will expand that considerably with the phase two going to 140 patients as planned, uh, which will give us a lot more data to understand things like the patient population, uh, what differences there, there may exist between the patients, their origin of their, of their, of their tinnitus, and whether or not that can, can give us hints in terms of what patients respond. I think we did see a very strong response in the present study um, with 45% of patients responding that were treated with OTO-313, uh, which is really a very strong signal. Of course, I think we have to remember that it's a single administration that we provided. So with OTO-313, as with our other programs with the drug delivery, we're able to give a single administration that delivers drug for a prolonged period. But one of the questions that we have is, and ultimately will take a look at, is what would happen if we take the patients who did not show perhaps a clinically meaningful improvement on a single administration, what if they received another administration? Is it just that they need a little more drug? So that's the type of thing that we will look at in the future. Um, I think clearly what we're focused on is kind of a dual effort in that clearly there are a lot of patients suffering from these disorders. So 
we want to go quickly to where we can. So the phase two is is designed based on the results that we have. And these other questions are ones that we we'll have to answer as we go along in order to not slow down the potential development and trying to get to approval. So both in terms of the duration of the tinnitus uh, and understanding the patients there, as well as the different types of patients or, and opportunity for retreatment are ones that we um, are definitely thinking about and looking at how we can explore those down the road. Can we talk a bit more about uh, which patient groups are included or excluded from uh, from upcoming trials? So you already mentioned extending the six-month cutoff time to 12 months, right? So including people who've had tinnitus for longer than uh, six months. I believe that in terms of uh, where the tinnitus is located, you are uh, focusing specifically on unilateral tinnitus, so tinnitus in one ear. Is that correct? And is that still going to be the case for, for future trials? So you're then also de facto excluding people who have tinnitus in both ears? So as pioneers, this is these kinds of questions are exactly what we ask ourselves and we're trying to understand. Um, Part of what we are doing, as I mentioned, is is really trying to move quickly where we can, but understanding that there's still a lot of questions that we want answers to, and how can we do both, really? And so we really have to kind of divide up our efforts. Uh, what I mean by that is, for example, with the question uh, on unilateral versus bilateral, we recognize that there are patients that suffer from bilateral tinnitus, and it is something that we are very interested in. The difficulty that we have is the current testing that we're doing, and as we talk to key opinion leaders and expert in the field, is a question that is asked and clearly requires clinical work to understand, is can patients differentiate the benefit in one ear versus another, the other ear, if, they're, if they have bilateral tinnitus? So are you able to see a change in one ear um, versus the contralateral ear. That's the kind of thing that we need to understand in order to design clinical studies, and that will take us some time to do. It requires separate clinical work. And so what we do know is that we can see improvements based on the data that we have in patients with unilateral tinnitus. So our focus goes immediately there um, in terms of advancing to phase two because we need to show that the drug is is working um, and the promising results we've had we want to to uh, bolster those results that will further encourage uh, the continued development of the drug that will then allow us to look at these other things such as bilateral administration and ability to improve conditions for those patients and whether or not the testing that we're doing is able to be measured in patients with bilateral disease so it's not so much a matter of the drug alone it's really a matter of we have to remember that these clinical studies involve tests that are used to document whether or not there are improvements. So we have to understand the nature of those tests and what their sensitivities and capabilities are and whether they can detect those changes. The other thing with the patient populations, as you mentioned, uh, the 12 months, up to 12 months duration, uh, the other parts of that are we are focused on patients with cochlear origin. So they have to be able to point to a place in time of the origin of that persistent tinnitus 
um, that is of a cochlear origin. So we're talking about noise-induced, we're talking about uh, trauma to the ear, uh, infection of the ear that could have resulted in that tinnitus, as opposed to, as Alan mentioned, for example, uh, head trauma, where maybe it is more of a central phenomenon uh, of tinnitus. Right. So it's uh, you're sort of narrowing the fields or the scope um, because you want to be able to prove success in that group, but it's not to say that it couldn't also work for people with bilateral tinnitus. Exactly. Yes. And we are committed to continuing to develop. Um, it's the kind of thing that we could see ourselves um, you know, going for an initial indication and then expanding that indication with additional data. But as we, I think, many people recognize drug development is a very long process. And so to answer all of the fundamental questions up front in clinical research would require considerable time and delay the ability to at least get the drug to the market to be able to help the patients where you can get the fastest um, demonstration of efficacy and safety. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly a long and uh, sometimes feels like a tedious process, but I think there are good reasons for um, for having such rigor in place. Um, by the way, our, our listeners couldn't see this, of course, but I saw just now that uh, at Alan's side, the lights turned off and he was sitting in the dark, which made me chuckle a bit and distracted me a little bit from what Dave was saying. But I guess you resolved that situation, Alan. <laughs> yeah, I have to move more. <laughs> it's, a, it's a movement sensitive. I have to wave my arms around a little here. Wave your arms around now and then, yeah. Um, Dave, you already mentioned briefly that you know, one of the key things you have to do in a trial is to prove, well, basically prove that it works. So in the case of tinnitus, you have to see improvements in tinnitus. But we know it's actually very tricky to measure tinnitus improvement because we don't have that objective measure in a way that you might have for some other conditions. You know, there's not a scan or a blood test or uh, some of those things are being developed. But currently it's it's usually you have to rely on subjective measures. So basically asking the patient, has your tinnitus improved? Has that been challenging? And how have you dealt with, uh, with that challenge? It is an inherent part of what we have to do in the clinical development process, and it is challenging. Again, this is why we proceed stepwise. What we are doing, in, in addition to trying to demonstrate safety and efficacy of the drug, is to demonstrate the correct endpoints that we are using, that those endpoints are sufficient to demonstrate efficacy and that the regulatory authorities will recognize those endpoints as acceptable endpoints for approval of the product if we're able to achieve success in the clinical trials. Part of what we are doing as well, again, coming back to that pioneering effort, is really trying to understand the different measures that have been developed. As you've mentioned, it's subjective. And so there are different types of questionnaires and different types of tests that have been developed by researchers for tinnitus. But no one has done the clinical development work to show whether or not those could be utilized for drug approval uh, to demonstrate efficacy. And that's what we have to do. So you know, it's easy to think that clinical trials are, does the drug work or not? That's, a, that's only one of the questions you're trying to, to do in this early stage. You're really also trying to develop the knowledge of the endpoints. So, for example, in this study, one of the things that we're quite excited about is we utilized a, a very well-developed instrument called the Tinnitus Functional Index. It's a, 
a, a questionnaire, 25 questions, that was developed by a consortium of researchers uh, who had been looking at tinnitus. Um, probably a major part of the field were, in, were involved in development of the TFI index. And they worked together, um, looking at different types of tests, what questions worked and didn't work, to put this questionnaire together. And so we feel it really represents probably the best at this point in time in the field. And so one of the things that we were trying to demonstrate in our initial uh, clinical work was that that TFI index, which we've used as our primary and will be in the, in the phase two, that it really correlated to other subjective measures of tinnitus that have been known in the field, such as tinnitus loudness and annoyance that are done on a daily basis where patients rank their loudness and annoyance based on a zero to 10 scale, as well as what's called the patient global impression of change, which is just the patients de determining whether or not they, since the beginning of the trial, are in a better place. Do they, is their tinnitus better or not? And one of the things that we're highly encouraged by and what we're going to be looking at again in the phase two to further document is we saw extremely high statistical correlation between the TFI and the loudness and annoyance and the patient global impression of change. So all four. So even though they were taken at different points in time with the patients, they all came out highly correlated. And we think that's the kind of work that is very important to help establish what could be utilized for approval of the drug. So it's an example for individuals to understand that in that effort of drug development, we're working to demonstrate the benefit of the drug, but we also have to establish the capability and uh, uh, applicability, if you will, of the, of the assays that we're using, in this case, the tentative functional index, for example. I see. And, and do you intend to use similar measures for the future trials? The phase two has all four of the same. We've not changed that and we've not changed our primary outcome. Uh, we're very encouraged by those results, both in terms of the response that we saw in the patients, as well as the performance of the different measures. In fact, one of the things that we've shown additional data for recently um, that's available in our presentation, that's available on our website is that the, uh, as I mentioned, the TFI has a, a subset of 25 questions, one of which is an auditory component. And so one of the things that was we were very interested in is looking at the auditory questionnaires. The questions are, does a patient perceive that they're hearing more clearly? Can they hear conversations more easily? And all of those were actually very high in outcome, very uh, uh, high clinical improvement for the patient. So it really documented in that situation that the TFI is really demonstrating an overall benefit, not just in things like ability to sleep and sense of control, but also in the actual hearing function, which is what you would expect if you are reducing tinnitus. Can you summarize for our listeners what you've seen so far in terms of efficacy for OTO313? So how well does it seem to work? What kind of improvements have you seen based on the results so far? In the study, we had, as we look at the patient population, we had 15 patients on OTO313 and 16 patients on placebo. And as we look at those patients, we had, as I mentioned, the four endpoints, the TFI, tinnitus functional index, as well as loudness and annoyance done on a daily basis and the patient global impression of change. The TFI, as developed by the consortium of researchers, was determined to have a clinically meaningful change being a 13-point reduction. 
So we were recruiting patients that had moderate to severe tinnitus. And so a 13-point change for them would be, of reduction would be a clinically meaningful improvement for them. What we saw in the study, and we actually took a very strong um, hurdle, if you will, because based on the biological mechanism that we see for the drug, uh, we actually believe that you need to be able to show consecutive visits that you have the improvement. Because if you're making a biological change, you expect it to be a more permanent change and more permanent improvement. And so many companies will look at single time points. Um, are you better at 90 days, for example? We think it's important that you're actually looking at over a time basis of consecutive. And our key opinion leaders who have looked at our data agree with us that we've set a very strong hurdle there. So we're actually looking at improvements at month one and month two and looking for patients who have had an improvement at both time points that were 13 points or greater, so clinically meaningful change. And what we can see from our data is that 40, 45% of patients, 43% to be accurate, had an improvement of at least 13 points or greater at both month one and month two following a single administration of ODO313. Uh, in comparison, only about 13% of placebo. Uh, there were only two placebo patients that showed that kind of improvement. And we even saw improvements up to as high as greater than 30 uh, reduction in, in, in their TFI scores. So to put that into context, we had patients going from uh, moderately severe tinnitus to mild tinnitus over the course of a single administration of drug at the two-month outcome. So I think that's a substantial improvement. It's highly encouraging data, very exciting, that you could look at a 40% 40, 40 of the population getting improvement on a single administration. is quite remarkable. Indeed. Uh, what can you say about potential um, risks? Uh, I, I think from the phase one slash two trial, there were two patients who had tinnitus worsening, but interestingly, they were not on the drug, but on the placebo, if I understood correctly. So what would you attribute that to? Well, actually, this is very interesting because the, the safety data, what we've shown in the safety data was that the patients treated with ODO313 had fewer adverse events in the course of the study than the patients on placebo. That actually, for us, is further indication of the potential efficacy of ODO313. Um, because those patients did not experience uh, hear worsening of hearing or worsening of tinnitus that were treated with ODA313. Uh, to put this into context, the placebo is the same formulation as ODA313, just minus the drug. So it's not a difference in, it's a true placebo in that it's exactly the same material, it just doesn't have the drug in it. And so what we're seeing here is really a, a normal patient population. You can look at the placebo patients as being representative of following in the natural history of a tinnitus patient. And so it's not unremarkable that you would expect some of those patients could worsen, both in terms of their hearing uh, loss as well as in their tinnitus. And um, as a result of that, again, it's just very encouraging that we saw fewer adverse events that were irrelated such as hearing loss and tinnitus in the treated group. And that's one of the further remarkable things about the data that we look at that really encourage us as we move into phase two. Yeah, that's very interesting. So uh, Alan you know, already explained the, the basic mechanisms of OTO313. It's an NDMA antagonist drug. 
there was a similar drug being developed by a company called Oris Medical, called AM101, which unfortunately failed. What do you think is different about O2313, either in terms of uh, the drug itself or maybe the trial design that, in your opinion, gives it a better chance of success? Really, it's all of those. Um, As you mentioned, uh, drug development is a comprehensive effort. uh, I have many factors and variables involved. And what we have to do is really try to, to develop all of the things that we need to do to be successful. So the key differences here are there is a drug difference. Uh, we've selected gacyclidine, which we see as being much more of a potent molecule um, and preferred over ketamine, which was the other product. The other is, of course, we've talked, we've not spent time talking about, but we've mentioned our drug delivery technology, where we are able to get from a single administration a sustained exposure that is able to uh, drive drug into the inner ear and give us uniform distribution throughout the entire cochlea. We can see from work that other, others have done uh, in their clinical work, including uh, the, the program that you mentioned, where they had to go in trying to do multiple injections to get enough drug into the inner ear. So we're always left with the question of, is it a factor that they did not get enough drug to be effective? Uh, we, we obviously, with our drug delivery technology, have really tried to overcome that, and we believe we have. The other part is around the clinical trial design. We take a lot of steps to control the, the, the trial population. So we do what's called a lead-in phase, where we make sure that the patients have the level of disease that we need to be able to see a change in the clinical trial, as well as that it's stable, that it's persistent, and that it's stable, because we obviously can't have patients who are having pulsatile tinnitus, for example, where it comes and goes or reduces in the level of intensity. And those are things that uh, were not done in prior work. We also require minimum level of disease because I think it's pretty obvious to people that if you have a low level of disease, your ability to see improvement is probably less than if you have a higher level of disease. Um, And so these are all of the things around both trial design and design of the drug and selection of of the drug candidate that are really important in ultimately being successful in development. We're halfway through this episode, and if you've made it this far, you're probably interested in this type of content. Did you know it takes us up to 70 hours of preparing, organizing, recording, editing, transcribing, and publishing to create an episode like this? And we do it as volunteers, so we don't get paid. It's a labor of love that we're happy to engage in because we all have tinnitus ourselves, and we know how bad it can be. We do have costs, though, like equipment, studio hire, software, and marketing and distribution. And besides the Tinnitus Talk podcast, we also run the Tinnitus Talk support forum, a free online community where people can meet each other, support each other, and share information. That's why we're ever so grateful to the 145 individuals who are currently supporting the Tinnitus Talk podcast. Without them, we wouldn't be able to produce this content or continue our other volunteer work. This is our 16th episode, and we're passionate about continuing to deliver high-quality content to the tinnitus community. If you choose to support the podcast, you will allow us to make more episodes, and you will get access to more Tinnitus Talk materials and other nice perks. Check it out on www. 
moretinnitustalk.com. Let's move on to Oto 413, uh, which is being developed for hearing loss or rather a specific type of hearing loss called cochlear synaptopathy. It's a bit of a tongue twister and I think not many people out there, uh, at least uh, as far as our lay audience is concerned, might know exactly what cochlear synaptopathy is. So maybe, Alan, you can start by explaining that and, and then explaining how the drug is meant to um, tackle cochlear synaptopathy or what the basic mechanism of action is there. Yes, certainly. Um, yeah, it is a little bit of a tongue twister. But what it represents is, in fact, it's the same synapses we, we were talking about with, with Oto313. So it's the connections between the inner hair cells and the cochlea and the auditory nerve, the synapses, the, the first synapses that make that connection. These synapses we know are a very vulnerable part of the system. So here with Oto413, we're talking about hearing loss. And uh, there's been a, a lot of emphasis on hair cells and their contribution to hearing loss, which is, which is clearly part of the, the story. But if you like, the unknown part of the story for some time was that these synapses are actually very important for that. Uh, they contribute to something which has been called in, in the field hidden hearing loss. And that is that when you lose these synapses, you don't necessarily lose uh, hearing in a quiet environment. But when you lose these synapses, then it really affects how you can hear uh, speech and noise, for example. And that's the endpoints that we've used in studying Oto413. Um, so these synapses uh, are very clearly uh, an important component of the system, which contribute to not just the hearing level that you have, but these more subtle, if you like, um, nuances of how you perceive conversations, for example, or if you're in a, uh, a noisy restaurant, the background noise is preventing you from contributing to the conversation that's around you. So that was really the, the, the genesis of, of this program was to see if we could find ways to repair this cochlear synaptopathy that occurs. And it's really this, this connection that happens. It's the very end of the auditory nerve and how it connects with the inner hair cell. And so the way we approached that with Oto413 was to use a, a molecule called uh, BDNF, which stands for uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So that's one of a family of proteins called neurotrophins, which have an activity to facilitate synaptic connections. They do this during development, uh, when the brain is developing and when the, uh, the inner ear is developing. And in fact, BDNF is one of the molecules that is responsible for establishing these synapses the ones that we're talking about, which are vulnerable, it establishes those during development in, in, in the embryo. And so it's kind of a natural way to think about that might be a way to restore those synapses when they're damaged in the adult, when you need to restore them in order to restore the speech and noise capability. So that was the genesis of the program was to, can we uh, take BDNF and apply that into the inner ear so that it can restore these synapses? And one of the challenges there is, can you deliver that in an efficient way uh, and that's one of the things that um, Dave just mentioned that the, the company has focused on since its inception is how we can deliver molecules in a, in a very efficient way to the inner ear. And so uh, we've done that with small molecules, but we also can do that with a range of other molecules, including biologics like BDNF. BDNF is quite a large protein, and there were questions about whether you could actually deliver BDNF through an intratympanic injection placing it on the round window membrane. The round window membrane is, if you like, the entry into the inner ear. Uh, so when you place the drug in our formulations that hold 
the drug there for a period of time? Can you get BDNF crossing this membrane and having access to the synapses which are in the ear where it needs to have its effect? And in fact, um, you know, in, in, in preclinical experiments, we've shown repeatedly that you can do that not only from measuring BDNF levels inside the cochlea, in the fluids in the cochlea, or in the cochlear tissue, but also in animal models where we've tried to reproduce this cochlear synaptopathy where we can cause uh, noise trauma to animals, which causes them to lose those synapses. And you can measure that by either looking at them directly with confocal microscopy, where you can actually visualize the synapses, or you can use uh, a, a measurement, which is like an EEG, if you like, for the auditory system. So you put electrodes on the, the surface of the skull and you can look at uh, sound evoked responses. So you're measuring a, a functional response. And when you do that and you look at the component which these synapses are responsible for, you can find that you can restore them with treatment with BDNF from this uh, single intratympanic administration. So the animal studies really uh, are a strong suggestion that you can restore these synapses in these situations which we think mimic the hearing loss that people are experiencing from, uh, from uh, the, sound, uh, the sound and noise type of environment. And uh, so taking that forward, we've been uh, uh, very encouraged by the data that we've seen in the clinical studies where we now started to see efficacy of this approach in, uh, in patients that have speech and noise difficulties. Yeah, it, hidden hearing loss or cochlear synaptopathy, it's such an interesting phenomenon uh, because we hear it all the time on the Tinnitus Talk Forum and, and other you know uh, people with tinnitus that we engage with who also have hearing issues, but they will say, well, I went to take an audiogram and the audiologist said everything was fine, right? So, But it's not fine because I can't hear properly. I can't function properly. Uh, I can't have discussions uh, with people, uh, etc. So I think this is so, it's really an under-recognized phenomenon. And in fact, I think you can lose a lot of those synapse connections that you that you talked about before it will show up on an audiogram, right? Then it's really already quite far gone, I think. Is that correct? That's that's correct. But as you said, the, the audiogram itself is not really telling you the whole story. So it, it's telling you about can you hear in a very quiet environment? What's your what's your auditory threshold? That that's been the traditional way that that's that that hearing has been uh, evaluated for for a long time. What we really want to know is is what the real world situation is like, uh, where you have always background noise, uh, and that's where people experience, as you said, the difficulties that that they have. Um, and so that's why this is particularly exciting, is because we now think there's a mechanism we can get at which can can access that. So, if we can restore these synapses, and I think we have evidence in the in the preclinical studies that we do that, and now you know some preliminary evidence in the clinic that we can do that, then that that's really exciting. Uh, and it could be a, a big benefit to to many patients that experience this this problem of um, of, of hearing and background noise. Mm. Who do you expect will most benefit from this drug? Is it basically anyone with hidden hearing loss? Is there a particular sort of target group that you think will will benefit uh, most? So in, in in the clinical trial that we ran, then um, we actually uh, admitted patients that had not only relatively normal audiograms, so you know, no overt hearing loss, um, but also ones that had moderate to severe hearing loss. And in fact, we saw effects across the board. Um, so I think you know, we feel this may be applicable not only to this kind of traditional hidden hearing loss population, which have normal audiograms, but may also be applicable to those that have some, some degree of hearing loss. And 
you know, there's a lot of emphasis in the field on, on hair cells and how hair cells and hair cell loss is contributing to, uh, you know, more severe forms of hearing loss. And that's certainly true. But I think there's an equally uh, strong story to be made about the synapses also, that the synapses, the connections to the hair cells are also very important. So we think, we think both are important, but we're very encouraged by the data we've seen so far in, in, the, in, in you know, the admittedly limited number of patients we've been able to examine that actually have a, 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 a defined amount of hearing loss where we're seeing improvements in speech and noise. Mm. I think in the phase one slash two trial, if I understand correctly, you, you were using a number of different outcome measures, so the ways of assessing the success of the treatment. Uh, and you're now planning to run an expansion of that trial with a sort of a reduced number of outcome measures. Can you tell us a bit about that? Maybe I'll take that, Alan. Sure. I think there might be a discussion about the the, the growing evidence for cochlear synaptopathy that exists now in, in terms of patients with just general hearing loss. So we could probably potentially talk about that as well. With regards to the uh, phase one, two trial, we did have a large number of tests that we were conducting. Again, we were doing both in parallel, trying to demonstrate the safety of OTO413, the potential for OTO413 in terms of benefiting um, hearing, um, as well as trying to understand endpoints and working with, of course, uh, key opinion leaders and experts who were both clinicians as well as audiologists who are really the ones that are treating many of these patients today or seeing these patients as audiologists, we, were, we encountered that there were a, a great number of tests that people believed may be beneficial. And so you can kind of say that we, we, we threw the kitchen sink at it. Um, so in this first uh, part of the study, we, we really included a large number of tests. We obviously were very focused on the speech and noise tests because that really represents the real-world situation, which is ultimately what we're trying to do, which is improve the patient's ability to hear in a noisy environment and understand conversations. Um, so those were very key to us. So we had three different tests because we're trying to understand which or which combination of those really give you the best ability to understand improvement in patients. Um, but we had a lot of other tests, things that were electrophysiological tests. So Alan mentioned some of the work being done preclinical that are kind of like an EKG. Well, those are those kinds of tests that we can do in human. Uh, things like auditory brainstem response, where electrodes are put on the skull, and we can look for, with the addition of sound, how does the how does the um, how does the brain perceive that, and that can tell us what's happening in the cochlea. There's other tests, like for example, middle ear muscle reflex, where the middle ear muscle tightens um, in response to sound. So, a great number of tests that we were doing, trying to understand which of those may provide an ability to detect and see changes. Part of what you're looking at is trying to also understand the variability of those tests. You know, it's, it's, does the test even have the ability to be repeated in a patient over time and still give you a, uh, a consistent result? And so what we've been able to do from that work is really start establishing then which tests work in a clinical development sense and which ones don't. Um, and we've been able to do that. So as part of the development work that we do and con contribution to the field to be able to say these are interesting tests, but they really don't provide a basis here 
um, to try to advance the clinical development. And where we've come is an understanding that the speech and noise tests really do represent the best way that we see of demonstrating uh, improvement of patients' ability to hear in noisy environment. They represent the entire outcome of this very complex process, and ultimately it's what's most meaningful to the patient and their real-life environment as well. So for this expansion cohort, uh, what we are doing is we're, we're removing these other tests and focusing just on the speech and noise tests. That makes a big difference in that if you can imagine these patients were spending uh, more than four hours uh, just doing tests in this initial work um, each, at each study visit. So it's quite laborious and very tiring for the patients. And so what we want to do is further demonstrate in a larger population of patients that 413 is demonstrating benefit um, in patients with, um, with hearing loss, but also further refine that. And so we're removing these other tests and focusing just on the three speech and noise tests that we did originally. We're very excited about that and uh, are looking forward to learning more. Right. So where are you now? Are you sort of, are you on track with um, enrollment for that uh, expansion trial? And uh, so can you sort of, you know, take us through the timeline a little bit? So we will initiate on our timing of, of Q2. So we're, we will initiate the expansion cohort in this quarter um, and expect to enroll 30 patients, 10 on placebo, 20 on drug. Uh, that we will then follow, and we'll look at over a three-month period uh, following administration of OTO 413. There is additional work going on here. I think one of the things that, you know, people look at this, and we talk about expansion cohort just to kind of explain what we're doing here, is we're really taking a playbook out of oncology development. You know, time is everything in what we do. And to start a, stu stop a, st start a study and stop it takes considerable time. So one of the things that we've learned from our colleagues in oncology is that they will frequently take an early study like phase one, two, and basically keep that study open. So you have all your clinical sites set up. They're all ready to continue working. Um, and what you do is an expansion. Uh, so you can kind of think about the expansion cohort as being like a phase 2A, where we are really going into a larger patient population as if we were doing a separate study because um, it's its own cohort, but we don't have to go through all of the mechanics of starting a new study. Um, it saves both time and it saves money um, and allows us to do the things we need to do to then design the future studies that we want to conduct, such as we are here further demonstrating the benefit of the drug and further demonstrating that uh, and evaluating the word and noise, speech and noise tests that we're doing. Were there um, so far that you're aware of any anecdotes amongst patients regarding tinnitus or maybe hyperacusis? No, there the weren't. Um, and again, it was a fairly small study population. Uh, but no, we didn't receive any anecdotes of, of that kind. I think in the, uh, the patient population we had, maybe one in three actually reported some degree of tinnitus. So it was a fairly small number. So we wouldn't really expect to, to learn much from that. Yeah, maybe it's too, just too early to tell. Dave, you mentioned just briefly before that we hadn't really talked about uh, delivery mechanisms, um, but we know that the lower frequencies of hearing are located deeper in the cochlea and they're therefore harder to reach. 
Do, did you see any difference there in terms of improvements in higher versus lower frequencies? And and are, are you, you know, to what degree are you confident that you can sort of target all of the frequencies? This, this speaks to our, you know, our, our expertise in, in uh, delivery. You know, since the inception of the company, we've spent uh, a lot of time developing this expertise. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, it's based around uh, interesting panic administration, uh, so, in other words, an injection through the eardrum to place drug in in a a, a specialized formulation onto the round window membrane, uh, and the round window membrane is an entryway into the inner ear. And in fact, the round window membrane um, anatomically is at the base of the cochlea, so that's the high frequency end of the cochlea. So, what we've what we've seen, and and this is also apparent in in the literature that you can go read from other other labs that have studied this, is that. Certainly, with uh, a number of molecules, including small molecules and including, in fact, some biologics, then you can see a good diffusion. If you actually measure the molecule within the the cochlear axis, you can see diffusion. Obviously, it starts at the base if you're delivering to the round window membrane, which is the high frequency area, but it can also distribute through the cochlear to the apex, which is the low frequency area. And and the degree to which molecules do that depend on a number of things. And and we've been able to, to to look at this because of the extensive work that we've done. So it depends on the molecule and the type of molecule and the physical chemical properties of the molecule. It depends on the formulation that you have and and choosing the correct formulation is important. And it depends on time. And those all of those three three things interact. Um so what I can tell you is that, for example, with uh, with the Oto four one three program, where we're delivering BDNF, this rather large biological, then in our uh, preclinical experiments in the animal models, um, we see not only effects that occur in the base, where we see the high frequency regions, but we've also seen effects on synapses uh, throughout the the length of the cochlea, including the low frequency regions. So. Yes, we think we can we can deliver with the appropriate molecule and formulation. We can deliver to the whole length of the cochlea uh, and get effects throughout. I think another uh, thing that we need to understand here, as we learn about hearing loss and development of different programs to try to treat hearing loss, is that frequency is only one component of hearing. So we've talked about how what we're trying to address is speech and noise hearing difficulty, the ability to hear in a noisy environment, which is frankly the real world situation that we live in. What we now know from research is that noise and our speech and quiet or hearing in quiet, such as the way that typical tests are done, what we call pure tone average tests, where you're doing a pure tone in a quiet environment to detect those frequency changes you're, you're speaking about. We're really developed with that kind of hair cell-centric thought process, that the hair cells were what were responsible for uh, for hearing, and that if you lose the hair cells, you lose hearing. We now know that that's a very simplistic model, that that's not the case. And in fact, we now know that, and Alan can talk more about this, that we now know through great work being done by researchers um, in the academic area, that actually cochlear synaptopathy precedes hair cell loss in most cases, and actually is across the entire cochlea. Whereas what we know with hair cell loss is that inner hair cell loss typically begins at the higher frequencies. And that's all based on the the pure tone average test for the hair cells. What we really need to focus on is that real world practicality, which understanding whether or not you're hearing at a high or low frequency doesn't really matter 
if what you're trying to do is improve your ability to hear in a noisy environment, that is the real world situation of talking to other people. Um, and what I mean by that is, is because that is occurring at a lo- whole level of, of different frequencies, depending on the, the discussion, who you're talking with, their voice, and moreover, the ability of the brain to interpret with the information it's getting. So I think one of the things that it's important to understand is that with, with the development of cochlear uh, synaptopathy repair, what we're really talking about here is basically generating more of the data that, the, that is available and getting that information to the brain such that the brain can interpret. And the brain is an amazing computer in terms of its ability to uh, take information and process that in order to understand that speech in the noisy background to decipher what is noise versus what is speech. And it doesn't really, it has some fluidity, fluidity, I would say, in terms of frequency, if that makes sense, that you don't have to have hearing at every frequency in order for the brain to do that. So I think it's just what I'm trying to point out here is, again, our learning in this field and what we're learning and helping to advance in the field is that some of these tests, while applicable to certain conditions and disorders, such as pure tone average tests and looking at frequencies to understand hair cell loss really are not potentially uh, applicable to things like cochlear synaptopathy and trying to treat that where you really need to focus on uh, speech and noise tests. Yeah, I think it's really exciting to see these more recent insights and, you know, see the field of hearing science really move ahead and and look beyond just a hair cell loss, uh, as you pointed out. I have one more question on Oto413, and then we'll we'll talk about a few of the uh, the other drugs in the pipeline. Is it possible, either theoretically or in practice, that the drug could trigger the growth of too many synapse connections? So, because BDNF is the is the important ingredient here, um, and BDNF is well known to uh, stimulate uh, synapse and, and neur- neuronal growth. That's theoretically a possibility. Um, I can tell you that in the extensive studies we've done, both in um, in you know ex vivo experiments and also in vivo experiments, we we've not seen that. And and in doing those experiments uh, with the delivery mechanism we've talked about, you know we've delivered very high doses of BDNF into the cochlea, uh, and so you know we haven't seen evidence of that uh, occurring both in actually looking at synapses and measuring that, and also the functional measures that we've talked about. Uh, have not been uh, shown evidence of of any overgrowth to this point. Great. Uh, That's good to hear. So let's talk briefly, and I know it's very early days, but uh, as I mentioned, there has been some chatter about uh, Oto6XX, which uh, does, as far as I understand, target hair cells uh, in contrast to um, Oto413, which we just talked about, targets a different part of the auditory system. What can you tell us at this early stage about the drug and its mode of action? Yes, so uh, the program we have for Oto6XX is focused on hair cells and hair cell regeneration and repair. Uh, So as I'm sure you know, uh, there's been a lot of information uh, over the last, I would say, maybe 10, 15 years on hair cell regeneration and the fact that in lower species like birds and fish, they can have damage to their hair cells and can completely regenerate them. But in mammals, that that ability is lacking. So there's been a a lot of focus on the mechanisms in the mammal 
uh, that, that don't allow that to happen and how can you understand what's happening in, in birds and fish where this does happen to help you to, to make that happen in the mammal to re regenerate hair cells. It's a complicated area. There are many mechanisms that are involved and probably multiple mechanisms that need to be accessed. And so we, we've explored this uh, uh, with, with one particular compound, which is a, a proprietary small molecule. Uh, it was in license from the, the Japanese pharmaceutical company Curin uh, after we had done uh, a collaboration with them to understand the properties of these molecules. We haven't revealed its mechanism yet, but I can tell you that it has a, a very potent ability to increase hair cell numbers in ex vivo models of, of uh, cochlear damage. So for us, the, the, the real proof of the pudding here is, is when you get to in vivo, because that's been the barrier that's been there in, in the field, is that many, you know, a number of different molecules can show activity in ex vivo studies, but what you really want to see is its ability to have an effect in an in vivo study. So that's really the stage we're at with that particular molecule, is taking it into in vivo experiments in, in animal models where you have severe, uh, moderate to severe hearing loss. And then can we see uh, evidence for regeneration of hair cells? And can we see a functional benefit that happens from, from that regeneration? So that's kind of where we are. It's still very early stage. At the same time, we have other interests within this area uh, for uh, repairing hair cells. So uh, another way to go here is to think about the fact that maybe you don't need to regenerate the whole hair cell. So regenerating a whole cell is quite a task biologically. Uh, but there's now, you know, a lot of emerging data that you can have intact hair cells, but they still may not be functional because they're damaged in some way. And part of this thinking is through the stereocilia, which are the part of the hair cells which detect sound. So if you like, this is the hairy part of the hair cells, um, which respond to, uh, to sound. And there's certainly information out there that, that damage to stereocilia can be uh, a problem that contributes to hearing loss. Uh, and so one thought we have and we have a number of investigations going in this area is that you can tap into mechanisms that can repair those stereocilia and therefore restore function in an otherwise intact hair cell so rather than regenerating a whole cell then you can uh, repair the damage that occurs and that we think is a, is a lower hurdle than than the uh, the regenerative approaches that are being taken so so we're looking at a number of different approaches to this whole problem of, of restoring hair cell function um, and again, it's still an early stage, um, but really we'll, we'll know, we'll know when we make progress when we see some in vivo data that tell us that we have a, a, both a structural and a functional recovery. You mentioned, um, moderate to severe hearing loss. Are you expecting or hoping that this will really be something that can help people who have quite severe hearing issues? Yes, definitely. That, that's been the, the, the kind of the, the prevailing view in the field is that, um, when you have severe lack of hair cells, then, you know, really the, the, the best way to approach that is to try and regenerate them um, so you can restore the hair cells that are missing. But, but as we talked about earlier with, with the, the 413 program that we have, you know, the hair cells are not the only story, right? So restoring hair cells is good and it's fine and, and should help to improve function, but also restoring the, the nerve connection to those cells is also important. So, so, in the end, we may have to have multiple approaches in order to, to, to restore a fully functional cochlea back to uh, the way it, it, it was, uh, was originally uh, intended to be. A way that people can look at our pipeline of products is that Oto413 for cochlear synaptopathy is, is really targeted at the individuals with um, moderate um, 
to moderate severe hearing loss, as well as hidden hearing loss, um, in that from what we now know in the field in terms of the role that cochlear synaptopathy plays, how it occurs, that it now we know that occurs prior to uh, substantial hair cell loss uh, in, in just normal aging as well as in noise trauma, uh, that it really can play a role in that, and we're showing this clinically, in that moderate to moderate severe area. As you then continue to look at our pipeline, um, the Odo6XX, which is focused on what I'll call restoration and repair of hair cells, is really focused more on the severe hearing loss, where you can demonstrate on an audiogram that you have substantial hair cell loss. Um, and so it justifies both programs. We're looking at separate populations. Obviously, both have tremendous number of patients, um, and there are patients that probably are having both. Uh, a mixture of both hair cell uh, damage and, and loss as well as cochlear synaptopathy. So we think by having both programs, it's really important because, again, what we are learning in this field is that it's a much more complex process than just hair cell loss. And I think then you can see how our program, our pipeline evolves from there within protection of let's first try to protect what we have, um, which, of course, is what physicians and audiologists want us to do with our hearing is protect it. Well, clearly when patients are undergoing treatment with chemotherapy, we want to protect that hearing so that we don't have to see uh, patients who have substantial hearing loss following chemotherapy. So I think it's a, a great way for people to look at our pipeline and understand what we're trying to do across these range of disorders and hopefully able to help patients down the road. I think another drug in your pipeline that's very early stage is called Oto825, which is based on gene therapy, if I got it correctly. Um, gene therapy sounds to some people probably like science fiction, uh, and a lot of people will say it's the future of, of medicine. Uh, what can you tell us about that drug? As you, you were correct in saying, this is gene therapy for congenital hearing loss. So for people who are born deaf or with, with a hearing impairment. So ODO825 targets the deficiencies in, in one particular gene, the GJP2 gene. And it's the most common form of monogenetic hearing loss. And mutations in this gene, the GJP2 gene, account for approximately 30% of all congenital hearing loss cases. So it, it's, a, it's a relatively you know, large population of congenital hearing loss. So what GJP2 does itself is encode a protein called Connexin 26. And Connexin 26 is, is part of a family of proteins that form gap junctions between cells that facilitate cellular communication. And what that means in the cochlea is um, Connexin 26 is expressed in the support cells in the cochlea. And support cells do what their name implies, and that is that they support primarily the hair cells and the neurons which are in the cochlea in a number of different ways. And when Connexin 26 is, is knocked out of those cells, we know this from, from animal experiments, then this causes hearing loss and it causes uh, degeneration of, of hair cells and other, other cells within the cochlea. So that's the basis of why patients that have GGGB2 mutations have hearing loss is that the support cells which, which maintain hair cell and neuronal function are, uh, are deficient um, and that results in, in, in hearing loss um, that the, the people experience. So the idea of gene therapy is to provide uh, wild-type or normal GJP2 gene 
back to those patients that have mutated uh, genes, which are causing their hearing loss. And we do that using uh, a viral vector, uh, a denner-associated viral vector, uh, to introduce uh, a, a normal GGP2 gene in, into, particularly into the support cells. So the work we've done in this program is to identify novel AV capsids which can target support cells. So that means we get expression of the, of the gene of interest, in this case GJP2, in the right kind of cell. And we've demonstrated that both from in vivo experiments. Uh, the most recent data we have, which is very exciting, is that we've used animal models where Connexin 26 has been knocked out that have hearing loss. And we've been able to administer uh, our candidate uh, 02825 directly into the cochlear of these animals and restore uh, hearing. Uh, and also reduce the damage in the cochlea that occurs because of the loss of Connexin 26. So this is very recent data we've generated. We're actually going to be presenting this at an upcoming meeting uh, in May at the American Society for Gene and Cell Therapy. Um, and it's a good proof of principle that our um, candidate is, is doing what we think it does through gene therapy and has promise for restoring um, hearing in these patients that are suffering from uh, a mutation in the GJB2 gene. So for people out there who really don't know what gene therapy is, what would be the simplest way of describing it to them? Yeah, so you, you can look at uh, gene therapy as a way of uh, uh, restoring a normal protein into a cell. So when I talk about the adenoviral vector, uh, that's basically a package. A virus is a package, and we know viruses infect cells. Uh, certainly in the last year, we were very aware of that. Um, but we can use that in, in a good way to deliver proteins into cells. So the virus will, in this case, get into the right kind of cells in the cochlea, the support cells. Once it's there, um, the gene that it, that it has inside it then will start to generate the gene that we want to produce in those cells to restore the function. So the mutated gene that's there, which is not functioning, um, the, the function that that used to have is restored by introducing this virally induced gene into the cell. So it, it's basically a way of, of restoring a protein function that is missing because of a mutation. So um, Dave, Alan, we've covered all the sort of pipeline-related questions that I had, and I, I do have a, a few uh, more questions that are more about the sort of commercial uh, side of the business. But but before we do that, is there anything that we missed regarding any of the drugs that you're developing that you really want to mention or get out there? I think one of the unique things about autonomy is our pipeline and the extensiveness of our pipeline. As individuals can see, we working across tinnitus, multiple forms of acquired hearing loss with uh, both uh, restoration of cochlear synapses uh, looking at hair cell repair and restoration, as well as protecting um, the hearing uh, when patients are undergoing chemotherapy. Um, the other is, of course, now the gene therapy. Um, congenital hearing loss, or that is mutations causing hearing loss, represent about 2% of all hearing loss. 98% is acquired. But it's still in a very important um, area because, obviously, children are born who, who are not able to hear or may develop hearing loss uh, that can impact their speech development and their ability to function um, in the future. So we think having this broad set of programs um, further demonstrates our commitment to the field. And obviously, it's our sole focus um, in, in the neuroautology field. So we're quite excited. Um, we have a lot of work to do. Um, but I think, you know, we appreciate 
that we've had the opportunity to share this background on our programs uh, with, uh, with both patients, physicians, and other researchers. Great. Alan, was there anything you wanted to add about the pipeline? Only that I think, um, you know, we, we uh, focus so much in this, this area that we are, we are willing to look at, uh, and we have done this through the programs that you've seen, you know, a, any technology uh, available to, to get to the right kind of therapeutics. So um, clearly, you know, gene therapy was, was a, a, you know, a, a new venture for us, and we actually did this through a partnership with a, a, a gene therapy company called AGTC because they have that expertise. But it just shows our willingness to go out and find the right kind of technology to to treat the kind of disorders that 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 we'd like to treat in the in the uh, inner ear disease space. So, if we look at the totality of the pipeline and thinking about getting as many of those drugs as possible to market as early as possible, I assume that's always the intention, right? What can you say about the? The timeline in general, are there certain drugs that you're sort of prioritizing that you want to get to market quickest? Because I, like you said before, like you can't focus your resources equally everywhere. So are you prioritizing anything? Prioritization is a necessity, obviously, with the number of being a small company with number of people and, and our financial capabilities. So yes, we do prioritize, but our priorities are, are very clear. Uh, we have advanced the Oto 313 for tinnitus into phase two. Uh, with readout in the middle of 2022 uh, for those results. And we would expect from there then to be able to advance into um, uh, registration trials. Um, so clearly that's on the, the lead path uh, on development. In, in concert with that, we're advancing, as I've mentioned, in kind of a phase 2A style, the uh, Oto 413 for cochlear synaptopathy-related hearing loss. Um, and with results from that, again, expected in the middle of 2022, which is really not that far away in drug development. You know, it's uh, about a year, so that's actually very quick. We expect to have more data there as well as a better understanding of the speech and noise endpoints that we're using that will then allow us to have discussions with the FDA to advance that into further advanced trials. Um, so I think those two are clearly, uh, if you will, uh, pushing ahead. And what we're excited to do now with the data that um, Alan and his team will be presenting at the upcoming meeting that he's mentioned for gene therapy with Oto825, with that data demonstrating uh, proof of concept in animals, we're working toward uh, IND-enabling work for that gene therapy program. Um, and then coming from behind that, of course, is Oto protection with Oto510. And I think the longer term, uh, because we see it as a big challenge uh, technically, and we think there needs to be a lot more data to, to really um, uh, develop uh, the ability to go into the clinic successfully, um, is Oto6XX. I think one of the things that it's hard for us, you know, we, while we have to prioritize, there are ones that are, mean a lot to us in terms of we hear the stories from patients suffering from tinnitus. Um, and how it disrupts. We see it in the news, obviously, as there's been uh, major news recently about individuals suffering from tinnitus and complications from COVID, um, but also from hearing loss. And I think one of the areas that we have a profound interest in, and this is the reason for the gene therapy program, as well as our odor protection program, is these are really disorders that um, are really impacting uh, children or pediatrics. Many people don't realize it with our Oto510 Oto protection program, but children undergoing chemotherapy for tumors 
will be treated with cisplatin, which is wonderful because it's been shown to be highly effective, and many of those patients survive uh, their cancer. The problem is they end up with severe hearing loss. Um, in fact, uh, 80% will have some level of hearing loss, many of which are profound, and that obviously can impact them for life. And so it is an area that we're highly committed. So part of what we do in our prioritization is really try to figure out how can we move all these programs forward um, uh, and, and do so successfully. And I think we're, we're thrilled with what we're doing. Uh, we're excited by it, and, and we're really you know, hoping that others can take a look at this and, and see that there's a great opportunity. Um, and as we talked at the beginning, that larger pharmaceutical companies will recognize that there's tremendous opportunities in the ear space that warrant attention uh, from them. That would be a great side effect of your work, wouldn't it, if, if other bigger pharma companies start picking this up as well? Definitely, yes. So once your drugs or one of your drugs do hit the market, would you consider anything like compassionate use? Or maybe to put the question differently, are you thinking at all about how to make treatments uh, as accessible as possible to as many people as possible? Well, I think with approval, we would look to see how we can ensure that the, the products are being used by as many patients as possible, um, regardless of the situation of the patients. So it's clearly something of interest to us. The first job is to get them approved, and then from there to, to, to see that they can be utilized by the patients that need them. Uh, obviously, particularly true with things like congenital hearing loss, where you can identify the patients that have the mutation, which is actually being done today, where there are patients identified with the GJB2 mutation, but they have no means to treat them. Um, so that's clearly something that we're very interested in. I think from the standpoint, um, if your question is regarding compassionate use during development, I think this is where um, clearly we need to demonstrate safety uh, and we need to show that efficacy. The other challenge that comes uh, with compassionate use is uh, prior to approval is just the ability to support that. It becomes, uh, particularly for a small company, something very difficult to support financially because you need to track. There is a financial implication and a resource implication to that. So we definitely feel that the best way to proceed is to just go as fast as we can. Um, obviously trying, uh, working to be successful at that. So um, that's our approach. And, um, you know, we will definitely work with um, others to, to see that we can do as much as possible for patients. Yeah, I just realized my question was actually confusing because compassionate use is, uh, occurs before there's uh, official market approval. So thanks for clarifying that, Dave. In terms of autonomy's financial position, what can you say about that and specifically referring to, you know, the, the disappointment uh, around uh, Otividex, um, has that um, impacted um, your ability to finance those other drugs that are uh, in your pipeline and that you're hoping to get to market? No, I'm thankful to say no. I, I think that while we were disappointed in those results, uh, you know, our investor groups have been uh, very supportive. And in fact, we recently completed a, an additional financing, even following uh, the Otividex data um, that further strengthened our financial position. Um, you know, I'm quite proud to say that we have cash well into uh, the late part of 2023, well beyond a year of our expected data for Oto 313 and 413 in the middle of 2022. 
And that's a very key, um, you know, uh, uh, ability to have that extensive runway following the data. It gives us a lot of flexibility and capability, as well as being able to fund the, all the activities that Alan and I have talked about today. So we're very um, in a very strong financial position. We're very thankful to investors. I think one of the things that we've talked about anecdotes and clinical trials, I think one of the things that I've seen with investors is excitement around our tinnitus and hearing loss programs. Um, and I think the recent financing demonstrates that with uh, some very great names in the, um, in the investor space that have come into support of autonomy and the work that we're doing. Well, I have only one um, final question, but we can certainly touch on, on anything else that, that you still want to talk about. If we're thinking about all the people out there and, and, you know, we have a large audience of people suffering from tinnitus and other hearing disorders who are uh, in need of better treatments, basically. And what can those people out there do to support drug development efforts? Maybe not just yours, but in general. And is there anything they can do to help get better treatments to market sooner? Participation in clinical trials is key to drug development, and having patients willing to participate in clinical trials and clinicians who are willing to be investigators and help sponsor that clinical work is a priority requirement. We could not do it without them. And the benefit is not just to one company, it's to the field, it's to developing therapies for uh, people beyond ourselves. And so we are always extremely appreciative of the patients that participate in our clinical trials and the clinicians who serve as our investigators and their staff, because we could not do it without them. Uh, they are an essential part of it. So I think that's what individuals can do. I think there does need, you know, just to, to, to talk about this a, a bit, patients do need to understand that we do have requirements in the clinical trials. We're obviously trying to get a drug developed. That means we need to try to identify a target population that we can most demonstrate efficacy to get, order to get approval. And as a result of that, you're trying to get to a more, what I'll call, homogeneous population, a, a, a population that allows you to reduce the variables that you have to encounter um, and that may cause confusion in the data. And as a result of that, not all patients will qualify. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's just a natural part of clinical research and the challenge of, of trying to get drugs approved. But of course, we need the patients to try. We need the patients to, uh, to show up and to potentially uh, uh, try to participate in our trials, and we hope that many of them can. But we do also hope that they recognize that in not all cases will they qualify for the study. And it's not a reflection of our, and, and I say this for all companies, not a, uh, a reflection of our not caring. It's just that we're ultimately trying to get the drug approved to help everybody. So I will, we, we do have to start wrapping up now, uh, As although I, I feel like we could, could talk for many hours more. But I, let me first ask Alan if you have any closing remarks or anything else you wanted to mention and then i'll ask dave the same uh no just really thank you for this conversation i think it's been it's been great um it's been you know really good to be able to talk about the different programs we have um we're very committed to the patients and um, providing benefit to patients in this area as, as we've said is a huge unmet medical need and just myself very excited to be part of this 
And again, just going back to the what I think has been the renaissance in the biology here, you know, as a basic scientist, it's just a, a fantastic opportunity to be able to, to see that and then, you know, try and look at the opportunities there to make good therapeutics that are going to help the patient. So it's been great to be able to talk about that today. Great. Good to hear. Thanks. Uh, Dave? Yeah, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity. This has been a wonderful forum. We're really appreciative of the work that you're doing to help share information in the field. I think it is important that um, individuals such as yourself and the patients and clinicians, as well as uh, as those of us working in the drug development area in this space, um, we're really a community working together. And so not only is it an effort to develop drugs, but also to get the word out. And so I really appreciate the time you've spent with us today. Appreciate everyone's time in listening to this. And we look forward to sharing more information as we continue to move forward. Well, thank you both for your kind words. It's been a pleasure on my side as well. And I'm sure um, all the listeners out there suffering from tinnitus and other hearing disorders will also appreciate you guys taking the time to share your knowledge and insights in such uh, great detail. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.